Hi, friends. Welcome to Unyielding, a podcast for Pathways to Hope Network. Our goal for this podcast is to connect with mothers of children facing the juvenile court system. We want to use this platform to give a voice to the challenges you're facing while you're learning to navigate the sometimes scary and uncertain world we enter when our child has been charged with a crime. For the next 30 or so minutes, we hope that you will feel seen and cared for. We hope that you are reminded of your value and that you leave a little stronger than you arrived. Most importantly, though, we hope to honor the always beautiful, often heart-wrenching, unyielding love that a mother has for her child. Hi, friends. This is episode eight of Unyielding, and in today's episode, we are talking about how to keep it real, specifically We're going to talk about what I think is one of the most challenging aspects of having a child facing charges on probation or incarcerated, and that is the challenge of how we approach talking to others about it. We'll discuss all the ins and outs of who you should trust with this information, what you should tell, and what to do when someone asks you and simply put, you believe it's none of their business. We'll also talk about the top reasons most of us are reluctant to share this information and the powerful shift that occurs when we share our struggles. Hello? Are you still there? I know I probably lost some of you with that intro. You heard those last three words, share our struggle, and you were like, nope, nope, thank you, not interested, bye-bye, and I get it. I do. I 100% get it because that was me. In one of the earlier episodes, you may remember my story about how I developed ninja-like skills at avoiding people in supermarkets, at school functions, and even in my neighborhood. Every well-meaning text that was sent asking how I was doing was expertly avoided and redirected as quickly as possible. There were very few people that I allowed myself to go deep with when it came to this. And I think that's okay. I really don't think there is anything wrong with being picky about what you disclose and who you disclose it to. In fact, I think that it's wise. But before we go there, let's address the elephant in the room. Why is it so hard to talk about what's going on with our kiddos? I mean, this is something I know you are feeling inside at this very moment, but let's try and really identify it because I genuinely believe that the more we can shine a light on our inner darkness, the less it has power over us. I talk to many moms and almost always there are two things that they say within the first five minutes of our meeting. The first thing they almost always say is thank you. I think we are always so grateful for an opportunity to sit in a space with someone who gets what we're going through. There's so much power in that, isn't there? In fact, I believe that the most potent human connection we ever experience, aside from childbirth, is sitting next to someone in our brokenness and not having to say a single word because the person next to us just gets it. It's such an incredible gift and one that I never take for granted, whether I'm on the giving side or the receiving side. And the second thing they almost always talk about is how lonely they feel. 
They talk about how hard it is to open up to others about the struggles that they're up against. It doesn't matter if they're Christian, Muslim, Mormon, atheist, black, white, Hispanic, male, female, married, or divorced. Across the board, almost every single parent I meet struggles with feelings of isolation during this crazy time of trying to figure out what the next right move is. So if we all struggle with feeling alone, what keeps us from sharing our struggle with others? What keeps us from joining that support group, from seeing a therapist, from scheduling that one-on-one mentor session? Well, here are the top four things that I believe create a barrier between being alone and getting the support we need. Number one, and this is a biggie, we're afraid of judgment. Judgment on us, judgment on our child, judgment on our family. Brene Brown, who I talk about a lot, is a shame researcher. She's a professional speaker and an author, and she has this quote that has always stuck with me. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. As parents with children in the justice system, shame is what keeps us silent. See, we fear that once others hear our stories, they will no longer love and accept us. But more significant than that is the feeling that we will no longer belong. We won't belong in that PTA group. We won't belong in that circle of friends. We won't belong with our relatives sitting around the holiday table when everybody else's children seem to be doing great and ours are struggling. Will be cast out and so will our children. Others will make judgments about the type of parent we are or the type of kid our child is. And so we hide it. We bury it in a shallow grave and pray to God that no one will notice the mound of dirt behind us. But here's what I've learned. Shame needs three things to survive. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. See, the very thing we are trying to avoid feeling, shame, breeds in the environments we are creating. Isn't that something? Now, the second barrier to sharing with others comes from being in a place where we just do not have the emotional space to hear or carry the opinions of others. And there's no quicker way to find an expert on a situation than to mention a problem in public. Just take a look at any social media feed. People come out of the woodwork with solutions or how things should be. Opinions are rarely censored or seriously thought about before being typed out and sent into that vast and expansive metaverse. And if their comments or suggestions were helpful, then great. But they rarely are. Although our friends and families may be well-meaning, you may not be ready to hear advice from someone, especially if they've never experienced what you are going through. And the third barrier I think that comes up for people is a feeling of, I can only describe it as raw vulnerability. Think of a wound, a big, raw, fleshy, angry wound that hasn't yet begun to heal. When you have a wound like that, 
you need to be gentle at first. You take care of it. You're looking at it regularly. You examine it. You're watching to see if it's healing and you're being mindful of not bumping it up against something or causing further injury to it. And sometimes the feelings that we're experiencing are just like that wound. It can be so intense that it feels like you can do nothing but sit in it, acknowledge it's there, and begin trying to figure out what you can do to help the healing process begin. There are days in this process when it's all you can do to keep your head above water, to keep breathing, to keep waking up and going through the motions and just getting through the day. During this time, receiving feedback from anyone else just feels overwhelming. That pain and heartache are real. And when you find yourself in that space, the last thing you want is feedback from someone else on what you should do or how you should feel or worse yet, what you could have or should have done. Oh, for the love Can we please stop cutting and shitting on people? It's too much. It's just too much. And the fourth kind of barrier, it goes along with the last one, but this one more specifically involves the ability to cope with someone else's emotions regarding the matter. Sometimes I talk to moms or dads who have very supportive family members I mean, these family members rally around them, and it's so beautiful to see how they all stand firm together. I mean, the entire family shows up to court, taking up an entire row just to themselves. But there are also times when I notice those same families after the hearing. And I'll see an aunt or a grandmother who's upset and crying, and the mama whose child is being charged has to be the one to comfort them. Or an uncle or grandfather is outraged over what seems to be the injustice of the situation. Because those are real feelings, right? And the father of the child being charged has to walk them through their emotions and keep them calm. This is where it stops being helpful. And it's also why some parents choose to attend hearings alone. They have family or friends who offer to come. They may even desire the support, but having to care for the emotional well-being or opinion of another while navigating their own grief is just too much. These types of situations, they don't just play out in the courtroom. They also happen over coffee with a friend, during visits with a relative, or when a relative or friend calls to check in. And sometimes, sometimes this one thing all by itself is enough to deter moms like us from reaching out. And so those four reasons combined with shame can often create barriers that keep us from reaching out for help. But I'd like to give you something else to consider. See, everything I just mentioned is part of a script a script our minds have written out on all the possible things that could go wrong if we talk about what's going on with us. It's a built-in defense mechanism we have designed that helps to keep us safe, but it often comes with a hefty price tag of loneliness and isolation and shame. But the good thing about scripts is that they can be rewritten 
See, we can choose differently. We don't have to suffer through this in isolation. We don't have to hide behind end caps in the supermarket or turn our phones off because we're too worried about someone texting and asking about what's been going on. Now hear me out. Do you need to be careful about who you disclose to? Yes, 100%. It is absolutely wise to choose the person you trust with this carefully. It should be someone who is what I call a tier one friend. And I've talked about this before, but it helps me to think about my relationships on separate tiers. Tier three is acquaintances. They're the people you run into at school functions or coworkers. They're amazing people and you enjoy their company. You maybe even seek them out when you're in that environment. But everything is very much on a superficial level with them, right? Like nobody ever discusses the hard stuff. It's sunshine and roses, small talk about vacations you might be planning, or how everyone feels after being down and out with the flu. It's the basics. Tier two friends are a little more personal. You know a little bit more about things that are going on with them. They've shared some stories with you and you've shared some stories with them. You trust them enough to share some of your stories, like if your child is struggling in school or maybe if you're having trouble at work, but nothing major. The relationship has moved beyond tier three, but it hasn't yet matured to more than that. And then there are tier one friends and these people are gold. They are the ones who don't flinch when you disclose your deepest secrets. They are usually the ones who have seen some bad days of their own, and they just understand on a different level what it's like to walk through the hard stuff. Most of us only have one or two tier one friends, if we're lucky enough to have them at all. And sometimes a tier two friend becomes a tier one friend when you, in a moment of desperation and vulnerability, reach out to one of them during a crisis. That's how it happened for me. The person I chose to trust with this truth has become one of the few people in my life that I would now trust with anything. She's my sister forever. And it's one of the blessings that I gained while walking through this trauma. Other people to talk to would include family members you trust that are emotionally available to offer support, friends who have had similar experiences, a therapist, or a support group similar to ours. Being part of a support group can be extremely beneficial. Hearing the stories of others helps us make connections between our similarities and our differences. They offer a safe space to get information that is practical, and you get the added benefit of encouragement from people who genuinely know what it feels like to walk this path. See, sharing our problems with people who understand what we're going through is a very cathartic process. And most people leave these meetings feeling uplifted and encouraged if for no other reason than being able to temporarily leave the island of isolation behind. People who attend support groups will report an increase in social connectedness, an increase in confidence, improved coping skills, and a reduction in stress. And if you would like more information about our support groups, you can contact me via email at a-F-R-E-Y dot pathways at gmail.com. 
You can also send a direct message on our Facebook or Instagram platforms, and I'd be happy to get you connected to a group that meets either virtually or in person. All right, so let's see. We've talked about a few of the barriers that cause isolation, and we've talked about how to identify who it's safe to share with. Now let's discuss what to do if someone asks you about your child and you don't want to share what's going on with that person. As I said before, I spent so much time trying to avoid those situations on our path towards healing. They were a massive source of anxiety and I always worried about what I was going to say if I ran into someone who asked me what was going on. People talk, we all know this, and every once in a while, one of the parents of my child's friend or a coworker who had heard pieces of the story but not the whole thing would ask, likely out of concern, how we're doing or what happened. In those moments, it felt wrong to lie and it felt wrong to tell the truth. And I would lie awake at night thinking about how I would handle questions that came up. This, I guess, explains why I went to great lengths to dodge all conversations that might come up. So for today's practical tip, I want to give you some suggestions on what you can say when someone asks you a question and all you can think to say is, um, how about you just mind your own damn business? Okay, first, let me say this. You are not obligated to share this with anyone. I know some people who never shared any of it with their friends or even extended family. They chose instead to keep it to themselves. And whatever you choose, this choice is yours. The most important thing is that you just find some form of support for yourself on this journey. Whether through support groups, journaling, reading books, therapy, or podcasts, it doesn't matter how. See, this journey of healing, it belongs to you. And this process will be fluid. It'll change and morph and you will need different things at different times. And that's okay. There will be times when you need to be alone. And there'll be other times when it feels like you can't be alone. There will be times when you want to talk about it and times you are exhausted from talking about it. And wherever you are today or tomorrow or next week, allow yourself the space to be imperfect in this process. There is no perfection in grief. It's messy. And to quote my girl Brene again, what we don't need in the midst of struggle is shame for being human. So that's number one, no shame. So if someone has heard rumors or someone caught wind of something going on and they ask you how your child is doing or even how you're doing and you just don't feel comfortable going into it, you could just respond with, fine. Oh my gosh, Angie, how are you doing? How's Johnny? Fine. Thanks for asking. How are you? See, it's clear and it's direct and probably sends an unmistakable message that this topic of conversation is not up for discussion. And if someone says something like, I heard about Johnny, he hasn't been in school. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? What happened? You can say something like, that topic is too difficult to discuss at this moment, but thank you for asking. Or I'm not ready to talk about that at this moment, but thanks for asking. 
or even, you know what? It's a long story and I'm not ready to share it. If it's someone that you know genuinely cares, you could give a little more and you could say something like, thank you for your concern. I appreciate you reaching out. You know what? It's a sensitive subject in our family and I really appreciate that you're coming to me rather than going to others. But right now it's not something I'm comfortable sharing, but we'd really appreciate your prayers for strength and wisdom. So you could add whatever you'd like there. There will be those people who reach out that genuinely care. And it's a comfort to know those people are out there, even as we battle through feelings of embarrassment and grief. Until I sat down to figure out my go-to phrase, I was always anxious and worried about what I would say if someone asked me. Our instinct is to protect our kids and our family. We worry about others making judgments about our children based on the mistakes they made, and we don't want them to carry around a label. Taking the time to figure out your own go-to phrase will help you battle off those anxious feelings whenever they creep up. The phrase I finally settled on was a phrase a good friend of mine helped me come up with. My phrase was, and still is, it's not my story to tell. It was just that simple. I realized that when people were reaching out to me, they knew something was going on. So I didn't try to hide the fact that our family was going through some struggles. But if anyone ever asked what happened, I always just said, that's not my story to tell. Because to me, it's not. I don't want people talking about me and my struggles with others. So I don't share the struggle of others either. Once I had that in my back pocket, I knew that I would be able to just appreciate that someone was checking on me through a text or at a grocery store while being prepared to give a reply that sat well with me. I didn't hide or dodge messages anymore. In fact, it's something that I still use to this day. You know why? Because it's not my story to tell. And I've made peace with that. And I can feel confident in saying that. While working with families, I never ask a parent about the circumstances of their child's case. Because sometimes it's still in the beginning stages. And I don't want parents to feel like they have to put their child's case in jeopardy by feeling like they need to share something that they're not certain they should even share. And the truth is, it doesn't matter. If they want to share it and they feel ready to do so, well, then I'm fully present to walk beside them with that information. Still, all that truly matters is that our families know that this situation does not change the fact that they are worthy of love and belonging and that they will find their way through this. I use that same line, it's not my story to tell when I talk to my other children because undoubtedly they will also be questioned about what happened or what went wrong or what's going on. And being able to confidently say, it's not my story to tell, that's my sister's story or that's my brother's story, arms them in the same way. So this episode's practical tip is to think about your go-to phrase. Pick one or two to keep in your back pocket find one that brings you the most peace and then be clear, calm, and confident when you use it. Practice saying them. 
no excuses, no justifying, no explanations, no shame. Because friends, shame grows and lives in the dark. And if we want to overcome it, we must be willing to shine a light on it. And we do that by stepping out of silence one teeny, tiny baby step at a time. Think about it. How different would this journey be? How different would your life be, your family be, if you could come to a place of acceptance over what was happening? How would this journey that you're on change if you could trust that you will get through this and that what is happening today does not define your child or you as a mother? Mistakes Mistakes are unavoidable. So how would things be different if instead of living our lives focused on avoiding them, we lived with the purpose of overcoming them? Do you see the difference there? Shifting our focus from the past or the future to the now, that slight shift has so much power behind it. Think about when you were first learning to drive. My son, he recently got his driving permit and taking him out to practice driving has been quite the adventure. Has anyone else experienced that yet? Oh boy. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure I'd describe it as fun, but it is um, eventful. We'll say that. And the reason why is because to me, driving is second nature and I forget just how much goes into it how much of it I take for granted because I have muscle memory from years and years of doing it. And when we're out driving, I feel like I'm constantly having to remind him to keep his eyes looking forward. Why? What would happen if he was focusing and looking at the side? Well, if he was focused on the window to his left or the window to his right, the car would naturally start to go that way. When he looks over his left shoulder to check his blind spot, his hands, without him realizing, begin to steer in that same direction as well. Where he focuses, his attention matters. And the same is true in life. Where you look matters. Our minds want to replay the last month, the last year, or even five years ago and examine what went wrong. Where was the mess up? What did we miss? And that's natural. I mean, it's part of our biology. When we experience stress or trauma, our brain says, wait a minute, you missed something. And that is the reason that we landed here. It interprets the stress and the trauma as holes in our knowledge that need to be fixed so we don't land here again. So we think, surmise, contemplate, deliberate, reflect on what that was. It doesn't matter to our brain whether it was our fault or not. Our mind wants a solution because if we can solve it, we can fix it. Because if we know what went wrong, we can prevent something from going wrong again. Have you experienced that? I bet that you have. I bet that you've spent a lot of time in that space, examining the past and searching for that misstep the final piece of the puzzle that would help all of this make sense. Listen, is there value in that? Yes, to an extent, there is value in that. If you can identify small things 
tiny things that may have contributed to a problem, that's good. It's good to have information because when we have information, we can use it to access our inner self and determine if we should do something different. But it's not good to stay there. We stop. We respect it. We allow it to teach us what it needs to teach us. And then we put our foot back on the gas because we can't move forward if we don't keep our eyes on the road in front of us. We focus on what we would like our future to be and we allow life to slowly, very slowly, reveal the path that will lead us there. Okay, friends, well, that wraps it up for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Unyielding. I really hope that you found this information helpful and that it served you in some way today. If you did, could you show some love to this community of mamas by leaving a review and subscribing? You know how lonely this journey can be. And when you leave positive reviews and subscribe, it makes a big difference in helping other struggling moms out there find us. Oh, and don't forget to check out Pathways to Hope Network's website. The link will always be in the show notes below, where you can access an ever-growing library of resources, like a list of local and national resources that may be helpful, a page entirely devoted to frequently asked questions, as well as our blogs that cover a variety of topics. When you visit the page, remember to subscribe so you're added to our monthly newsletter designed to encourage and educate you throughout this process and beyond. You also receive access to our closed Facebook group community, where we break down this podcast even deeper. Just a reminder, our closed group is a small group of parents just like you that understands what it's like to have a child going through the juvenile justice system. Take advantage of this opportunity to be part of a safe space where families can come together to talk about their struggles, help answer questions, and provide judgment-free encouragement. You can also find our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where we post five days a week, posts designed to help keep you fighting. Remember, family is like life. It's a fight for territory, and once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want will automatically take over. Until next week, friends, remember we are stronger together.